You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd ask you to turn this morning to the book of Genesis chapter 28. Our text today in the sermon is from Matthew 7. This short uh, statement on what the narrow gate is. And you'll notice in Genesis chapter 28 that Jacob has this, this gate, this ladder, as it's been variously called, uh, set down to him from heaven. And I want us to make that connection today as we look at Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus calls us to enter by this, this very narrow gate. That what Jacob experienced in the wilderness was this ladder set to him, this gate by which he had access as we We'll ask today, what is that gate? Genesis chapter 28, beginning at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place, that place Bethel, where the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that I you give me, I will give you a tent. Matthew chapter 7 is our text this morning, beginning at verse 13, these two verses, verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Well, we have come to decision point at the Sermon on the Mountain. Decision point. There have always been, after these long periods of instruction, uh, decision, calls to decision, calls to make a decision that God would give these very serious calls, and you find them throughout the Bible. Who can forget uh, the very well-known Deuteronomy chapter 30? I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life, that both you and your descendants may live. 
that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey His voice and that you may cling to Him, uh, for He is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. Who can forget uh, famous Joshua, the famous text in Joshua that people know and put up in their homes. In Joshua 24, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Uh, whether the gods which your fathers served uh, that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel. And all of God's people were faltering. And Elijah makes a very bold, bold call. Look, if the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. And who can forget Jeremiah 21? Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And then he called him to a choice. Called him to a choice. Well, Jesus has been up on the mountain. Jesus has been up on the mountain and he's been giving deep, profound instruction. And now he is calling for this sort of decision, this pivotal point of the Sermon on the Mountain. And the Lord wants this this frequently done. I mean, you look through the the Scriptures, you think of all that you've received uh, in the preaching, all the instruction, all the revelation, and God uh, wants decisions set before people. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose you this day whom you will serve, who you will worship. And if we know our hearts and we know As we sing, our hearts are so easily prone to wander, prone to leave this God that we love. We understand those calls. We understand that we are to constantly cling to Christ. Cling to Him. Because we are constantly departing. Well, here comes Jesus with this grand call. uh, Enter through the narrow gate. This pivotal point, right in the middle of the sermon. It comes at a climax, really. Because from here on out, he's making some of the most uh, stark contrasts that uh, we find in the greatest sermon ever preached. The most effective, the most powerful sermon ever preached. Decision time. Why? Because there's two ways. Uh, There are two gates. There are two destinies. uh, Two very different types of of people. uh, Two very different kinds of trees, each bearing radically two different kinds of Fruit, some good, some bad. Two kinds of people, some of which on that day will come and say, Lord, Lord. And, of course, two kinds of houses. One with two very different foundations. One built on the sand and one built on the rock with two very different outcomes. It's a striking thing what Jesus does here in this sermon. From this point in Matthew 7 to the end. And it really makes us ask the question this morning, what in the world is he contrasting? What in the world is he contrasting? I think a lot of people uh, would love a very simplistic understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, as if Jesus were just uh, contrasting on one hand religion, and on the other hand, no religion. In other words, uh, belief and non-belief. A profession of faith and no profession. Acceptance and rejection. We could put it in all these different sort of terms and think, Maybe that's exactly what Jesus is contrasting. 
But I say we have totally misread the Sermon on the Mount if we see it this way. Jesus is contrasting two different kinds of religious people. Jesus is contrasting a broad way of religious people that leads to hell and a narrow, small way that leads to heaven. Well, that perks us up. That perks us up because of the graphic language and imagery that Jesus is using. We can understand a little bit of what Jesus was doing here uh, in Matthew 7, in, in our verses 13 and 14, that this is not just some great ethical discourse about how uh, you all can be a better you and live a better life, have great moral improvement. The striking fact about this sermon is that it's crushing law, hard-hitting law, and he's in your face. Think about the sermon. Just reflect on it a little bit. He starts off the sermon, early in the sermon, making a very striking claim. Unless you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to go to heaven. You're not going to make it. So, unless your life uh, is absolutely better than the most moral upstanding, upright person you know, there's no chance for you. There's no chance. Who do you know that's the most moral, upstanding, upright person? Your life better be better. That's pretty striking, isn't it? It only goes on. You may say you've never murdered, but you let something go unreconciled with your brother. If there's anger there, You've not done all you can to reconcile that. You're in danger of hell. And any of you uh, who've looked at a woman to lust this past week, any of you, you're an adulterer if you're married. And if you have that problem, well, guess what? You better cut out your eye. What in the stars? Cut out my eye? Cut out your eye, because it would be far better than having your whole body cast into the hellfire. Watch out for divorce. You do it for any reason except sexual morality, you're an adulterer. You want to know how requiring the second table of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself? That means your enemies. Anyone who persecutes you, anyone, you better bless. Therefore, if you're going to take up this name, right? I mean, this is the whole point. You be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then he goes on and he, he confronts all their religion, which really was, was a striking thing because all the Pharisees and all the scribes were standing there. And he says, you guys are always looking at the speck uh, in your brother's eye, but forgetting to pull out the plank in your own eye. You hypocrites. I know your fastings and your prayers and your giving of your money is done for men to see. I know that. I see all your religion. It's all phony. Do it as if your right hand does not know what your left hand is is doing. Further, uh, you think you can serve God and mammon? Don't lay up your treasures here. You can't serve two masters. Why are you worrying about your life? You're running around worrying about everything. You're not in control of anything. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added. And finally, you want to know how to live? Well, do unto others 
as you would want them to do to you. That's the law and the prophets. Ouch. Ouch. That's concerning. That's not easy teaching. Uh, that's not easy believism. And I, I, he knows the tendency of, of uh, the human heart. He knows that, that people will treat religion and they will treat Christianity as just a system of moral improvement. They will treat the Sermon on the Mount as, as if it were just great, some great ethical discourse for us to have our best life and know how to live better. I mean, really, what pagan leader does not somewhat agree with the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount? Or even, you know, Gandhi's favorite verse was, do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's the golden rule for everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. Jesus knows this. And people will hear all this instruction and think, ah, oh, this is just so applicational. No? This is applicational stuff. If I just set myself to do this, well, then I will be really, really blessed in my life. And you see, beloved, Jesus is, is really swinging here, swinging with an all-out attack on that kind of presumption. The contrast of the Sermon on the Mount is a contrast between a religion of human achievement and divine. Two kinds of religion. It's what Martin Luther called the, the theology of the cross or a theology of glory. Uh, the theology of glory is, and, and think of that ladder set down to Jacob, the theology of glory says, how can I, by my works, climb up to God? And the theology of the cross says that God sets a ladder to us and His Son climbs down to us and His Son fulfills all the requirements of the law. Two kinds of systems. Two kinds of religion. And Jesus is saying here, in this one sermon, all your efforts are consigning you to hell. It's that strong. It's that strong. And so it really is, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, it really is a sort of all-out assault on the kind of religion that our own hearts create. So here he calls uh, this momentary, he gives all this instruction, this hard-crushing law, and he says, here's your choice, here's your choice, enter through the narrow gate. The interesting thing I found in my study of this text is the first thing he mentions is the gate, and then the way follows. And he says in verse 14, uh, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. So the visual that we're given, the visual that Jesus is providing for us, is that there's this little narrow gate of entrance into God's kingdom. And once you enter that gate, from that point to life is this extremely difficult path. Boy, that's not the kind of thing we like to hear. It's just not. Not an easy thing to preach. Not the easy thing to say, but that's what Jesus just said. The word for narrow here, uh, it means constricting, very constricting. You get the mental picture of what John Bunyan described in, in this dream he said he had years ago in his writings. Uh, he said he was trying to, to enter the kingdom, and uh, he wanted to enter the kingdom, but he saw this little door on the side of the mountain, which he figured was the door to entrance into the kingdom. And he, and he kept trying to come to this door, 
and he says, I couldn't get in. And so I tried to push myself in, but I just, I, I was too much. And so I had to go back and I had to take off some of my clothing. And, and repeatedly after doing this, finally he was totally naked and he was able to push his head through and then he, he squeezed his, his, his shoulders through and he went in into the kingdom. Boy, that's a very good picture. Jesus says, you have to enter by this narrow, constricting gate. It pictures the gate of the temple. The gate of what we uh, sung in Psalm 24. How can I enter into His gates? Into that most holy place? How can I? This little door. So putting this together... Jesus is, is really making startling, startling claims here. There's nothing easy about entering the kingdom. And I know that, that today we have chalked up Christianity as something easy. You, you agree to a few questions, uh, you sign on a dotted line, you, you get the act of, of baptism, you just do this, you say this prayer, and from that point on we're taught that Christianity is just easy business. It's the most constricting thing. It's the most constricting thing you'll ever face. What's Jesus saying here? What's he saying to us? Why is he preaching this way? Remember John 10? Everyone knows John 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He who enters by the door, he says, is the shepherd. Now listen to what Jesus does in in verse 7. This is John 10. Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You hear what he just did? He changed the metaphor from shepherd to the door, and he says, I'm the door. I'm the door of access into the kingdom through whom eternal life is received. And this was the basis upon which Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man will make it to heaven except coming through me. I'm the entrance. I'm it. I'm it. What John 10 said is that anyone who tries to climb up some other way is a robber. And that's a direct connection to what Jesus says here is the broad way. Now, if the contrast, is, as, as we have seen, is, is not really between believer and unbeliever, but uh, between true religion and false religion, uh, true saving faith and, and, and unbelief, really, but as a religious sort of thing, then what we have in this contrast is two gates. Two gates, both of which are marked heaven. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Tell me what false religion ever says, this is the way to hell. It doesn't say that. Everyone says that they have the path to bliss, that they have the path to heaven, that they have the entrance into the kingdom. 
And so Jesus makes this, this contrast then between this, uh, this very constricting gate and this very broad gate. And the word gives a sense of a, of a, a wide open way, a way that is, that is pleasant to go down. It's delighting. It's inviting. Uh, it's easy to walk. Notice Jesus says that here. Jesus is saying there's a narrow gate and an open gate, a wide gate. Now, if we preach this the way that Jesus wants it preached, and if we understand this uh, the way that Jesus wants it understood, then I as the minister have to be as narrow and as intolerant and as constricting as Jesus is. Anyone would recognize that if, if the minister is going to be faithful to preaching this text. Any religious system, therefore, any religious system that is not obsessed, I say that in the right sense, with the problem of sin and does not uh, renounce man as, as vile, uh, with no ability to save himself, uh, totally cast upon the mercies of Christ, the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, has been confronted with an open, pleasant, wide gate. In other words, that means, that means that every Jehovah's Witness who denies the person of Christ, every Mormon who does the same, every Roman Catholic who's trusting in his own merits and his own works, every Muslim who's pilgrimaging to Mecca and killing to try to obtain heaven, every Christian scientist, and let me just add this, every so-called Christian that trusts in himself is walking through the broad gate. They're in a system, what they all have in common is that they are in a system of human achievement, human righteousness. And they are traveling through a gate, sadly, beloved, as hard as this is, that is marked heaven that is wide. It's a startling claim, I know. It's a startling claim because Christianity's claim says you can't do it yourself. It says you have nothing to offer God. All of you have turned to your own ways and you have no claims at all on His grace and His mercy. None by your life. None by what you do. None of it. None of it at all will ever merit anything before God. That's startling and that's hard for us. Jesus is saying here, after all the instruction we receive, okay, it's time. It's time. You have to enter through me. I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. There's no other way. Uh, there's no other name uh, by which anyone can be saved. There's no other gate. There's no other door. No man enters except through me, says Jesus. That is the most radical claim that could have been ever given in that world at that time. Think about it. That is radical, beloved. I'm it. I'm it. And now we're getting to the issue of the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting to the fundamental issue of the Sermon on the Mount. The great issue of the Sermon on the Mount is simply how is fallen man able to attain to this holy standard that Jesus set in the middle of the sermon? Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Jesus said that. Jesus leveled that. You have to be perfect. Tell me what's easy about that. 
You know? See, Jesus makes another uh, contrast. Not only is the, uh, the, the gate narrow uh, and constricting of entering the kingdom, uh, but the whole way of eternal life is difficult. That's not something you ever hear from false teachers. It just isn't. That's not something you ever hear from false teachers. And that's why Jesus contrasts by saying, here's the way uh, to eternal condemnation. Here it is. It's, it's spacious. Uh, it's roomy. It's easy to walk. It won't press you about your life. Uh, it won't confront your sin. And you'll feel really uplifted in yourself. You'll feel good. You will. That's always been the key mark uh, of the false prophet. The key mark of the false prophet, if you looked about the Old Testament and you study, they were always giving messages of what? Peace, peace. Uh, you remember Jeremiah and Hananiah when they were uh, um, standing there in front of all the people and, and Jeremiah was saying, no, you're going to be carried off to Babylon and Hananiah comes with that message saying, no, 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 the Lord's not going to do that. The Lord's not going to do that to His people. He's not going to carry them off to Babylon. You will be fine. You're okay. It was always the message of peace, Peace when there is no peace. And so it's no coincidence that um, the false prophets want to say something to make light of the gate as not being constricting. And so immediately following verse 14, Jesus gives this warning. He says, uh, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So in other words, the fruits that they give you will be a Christianity that's easy, uh, that's non-requiring. You know, I just heard the other day a top evangelical leader say in, in the States, it's not hard to be a Christian, it's fun. That's directly contrary to what Jesus just said. Smooth words and flattering speech. Jesus says, the way to eternal life is difficult. We're probing what he means by that. We're asking, what do you mean, Jesus, by that? You know, we study the, the life of Christ. We study his, the way he confronted people and the way he dealt with people. And oftentimes, I don't know what Bible people are reading because it's so in your face. <laughs> you know, I think of uh, Luke 14. How's this for an evangelistic altar call? <laughs> now, great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children... Brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Uh, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see him begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king, does not sit down first to consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Now listen to the conclusion. Consider what you're doing if you're going to follow me. Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Oh, that's not hard. Of course it's hard. Forsake everything? Forsake everything? You know what's really striking about that passage is I've been in um, the church 
as a pastor long enough to see that the, the strongest bonds are family loyalties. You know? Um, people will easily leave a church when somebody in the family is tampered with. It's the strongest bond in this life. Jesus says, not only must, most your, must your most intimate relationship in this life take a back seat to me. He says, all your idols have to come down, not only your most intimate relationship, but even your own life has to take a back seat to me. Even you. And we love ourselves. We love being our own gods. Again, this is radical teaching. And he says, you better forsake everything. And we could compile the way Jesus preached. It's no wonder people left him all the time. I mean, uh, unless you repent, unless you turn from your wicked ways, you're not going to make it. You will likewise perish. Whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for my kingdom. You want to follow me, rich people? Go sell all you have, give to the poor, then come. I came to send fire on the earth, how I wish it were already kindled. Do you suppose I came to bring peace on the earth? I didn't tell you not at all. I came to bring division. Wow, what words. Verse 14 of our text. Then the difficult way is after you've come to the gate. In other words, the life of the one who's truly come will be marked by daily dying to the self daily repentance, daily taking up your cross in this changed life. So the message of Christianity is, is, is so different than, than the other religious system which says you can do it, you can climb, you're a good person, you're doing well in life, you're achieving, God wants the best for you now. It's so different because the message of Christianity says you must renounce yourself. You must humble yourself. You must come like that publican to the back of the church and beat your chest and say, I'm not worthy of any of this. And then, uh, from henceforth, there's the daily element to putting to death sin in your life. That I'm constantly falling and that I'm constantly uh, repenting and that I'm constantly turning and resting in Christ alone for my salvation. How are we feeling? At this point, I tried to be as crushing as I believe Jesus was when this sermon was preached. How are we feeling at this point? The great concern is our lives don't measure up <laughs> to this. This is distressing, beloved. This is distressing teaching. Decision time. Enter through this gate that is extremely difficult. Uh, the, the gate is narrow and hard and difficult once you enter. And that's all set before us and our children next to a gate that is beautiful and uh, that is comfortable and that is peaceable with a path that is spacious, that is pleasant to walk, that is non-requiring, that tells me I can have my best life now. Remember, that was a number one book in the States that I can satisfy my flesh, that I can keep my sin, that I can, as I often hear, listen to my heart and stay true to myself. You know what that is? That's like putting between, before, us and our children, the choice to walk down the strip of Las Vegas or trudge to the Nooksack River. You know? 
Concerned? Yeah, we're concerned because no one's going to ever choose the nooksack, you know? I'm not in myself. And that's the gate. And that's the path. Even worse, the devil has done really well in setting up churches of the Broadway. Listen, does anyone answer this today? Because I'm sure you initially hear sermons like this that are offensive to us as sinners. Does anyone here like to be told that the, the gate to heaven is constricting? I mean, I don't. I don't like that at all. Does anyone want to be told that they have to give up everything for Jesus? Does anyone want to be told that if your hand causes you to sin, if your eye's looking at something it shouldn't be looking at, you, it'd be better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Who likes that message? Who likes that? But you see, a message like this, beloved, makes us come to grip with one reality. One pain. One burden. That I would never face in myself unless I were pressed with preaching like this. Lord, I'm done. That's it. That's the, the most difficult burden and pain uh, for a hard heart to confess. And that's the reason... The Sermon on the Mount begins with what? You know? I'm always amazed with how Jesus started this sermon. Blessed are the rich? No. Blessed are the good in spirit? No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Over what? What are they mourning over? Why are they blessed? Right? I mean, these are just crucial questions for us to ask. What is Jesus talking about? They're mourning over their sin. When's the last time we mourned over our sin? You know? We can be so hardened to it. So callous to it. And what all this is doing is assaulting the natural religion of our hearts. He's driving away with vengeance, smug self-righteousness. And if it angered you, then it did what it should have. So that we would say, and that we would be broken... And that we would be shattered saying, I'm nothing. All of my righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as a filthy garment. And that we would be like that publican who says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's not a one-time shot. I think we think when we initially become a Christian, that's the experience we have. And after that, no. It's daily more and more falling upon this rock who is Christ. And that's why the sermon ends uh, with this comparison of two types of people building on, on two very different foundations. The foolish man built his house on the sand, uh, but the wise man built his house on the rock. And the picture that we're given there is throughout the Bible, the rock is Christ, the builder of the house is Christ. As we fall on Him, He brings us to Himself. And then by His grace, we stay on that difficult path. It's all grace. <laughs> Look, you study the life of Jacob. He was a bum. The guy was a bum. 
Bad, bad, bad. I'm preaching through that in, in Lyndon and Jacob. I've been struck by this. And God is relentless. And God comes to him. And God sets a gate to him. Uh, Jacob would have never climbed it. It was all the wonderful, wonderful grace of God to Jacob. He loved him with a relentless, pursuing love. And it won his heart. Pharisees hate this message. Pharisees hate what's being preached because they love their own accomplishments. They love their positions in the church and in society and boards and all these things. All their religion, all their works, all their true doctrine. All their ducks are in a row. And Christ says, none of it impresses me. None of it. Only Christ is our righteousness. And so at the end of the day, that's why the way is difficult. It's not difficult because uh, we just need to come to the conclusion that I need to get some things together in my life. Boy, I try that every year at New Year's resolutions, you know? Try to go to the gym, clean up life, be a little better. That's not the ultimate conclusion here. A lot of people need to clean up a lot of things. Ultimately, this is the most difficult call because you totally and completely have to be killed to yourself. That's the whole message of the Bible. You have to die and be cast upon another who is your life. And that's the most impossible thing uh, for any sinner apart from grace. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich in spirit to be saved. And now you can understand the weight of God's grace. You can leave here today just overwhelmed. This message is the most wonderful message in the whole Bible. It's the message of the Bible. It's the gospel that we preach. Because we're feeling the weight of grace now. And we're seeing how wonderful and magnificent and and, and what the height, depth, and width is of the love of Christ that has been lavished upon us. Because no one can come unless the Father who sent Jesus draws him. And if you've come... You've received grace, saving grace. The enablement of the ability to actually live the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount is something that can only be through faith in Christ. So that as I live, I can say with confidence, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the message of Matthew 7 when we look to Christ. The worst part about it is that the final contrast Jesus draws here, he says, many go down, and I can't get over this, It's, it's, it's alarming. Many go down this broad, comforting, path, he says. A path that ultimately leads to destruction, to total ruin, to eternal destruction. But he says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And only a few find it. Only a few? Only a few? You know, in Revelation, we have described that on that day, there's going to be a multitude that no man can number 
of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation standing before our God, worshiping Him and blessing Him, who were saved, who were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's going to be a great number. But in the whole scheme of things, from the beginning until now, He says, few find it. Think of what Jesus said in Luke 13. Then one said to Him, Lord, are are there few who are saved? And He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Here's the reality. In the whole scheme of things, the majority of this fallen human race today sits under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. And I say that with weeping, with tears. That's a horrible reality. But that's what the Bible teaches. They hear the gospel, so many, and they reject it. The gospel comes and even in contrast with the false religions who are trusting in themselves. It comes, you have to renounce yourself and look to Christ. Come to Him. He's the door. He's the gate. And the minister stands up week after week and he's giving this call. Come to Christ. Um, and yet we have a world full of religions today who are saying, it's easy. It's full of health and wealth. You can do it yourself. You're a good person. Just build up your self-esteem a little. You know? Get a glass cathedral out of that one. Everyone has their path to God. There are many ways. So sad. He says, if you go down this narrow, constricting path that leads to eternal life, who are they? What do they look like? How do I know? You know? Well, the beauty of our Gospels is that God has shown us this time and time again. He's been so very clear about who will enter and who has entered. We've seen this. We see it in the woman, remember, who had the the flow of blood. And she said, if I can only just just touch his garments, then I know I'll be made whole. We saw it in the Syrophoenician woman who said, yeah, I'm a dog, Lord, but I need to eat too. You know? We see it in these, these constantly, these poor, sick sinners who come to Jesus on mats and in beds who are leprous and who are outside of the city, who are the blind people. Those are the ones that came into the kingdom. Why? Because they were needy. And they saw how deficient they were without a Savior. In contrast to the righteous, right? The Pharisees. Remember the parable Jesus told? The king is mad at all those whom he originally invited to uh, his great feast. They wouldn't come in. They didn't want to come in. They didn't need to come in. They were doing so well in this life. But the master said, go out quickly and bring in who? The poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. What poor man has garments to come to a feast? What lame man or maimed has the ability to walk to the feast? What blind man has the ability to see to come? You see what he's saying? Which of these had an ability in and of themselves? No one could climb the ladder. If you find that, if you understand that, 
Well, it's a great number. But what do they find? They find Jesus as their righteousness. And that Jesus was the one who came to seek and to save them. That's the gate that all of our affections and all of our desires uh, would be upon Him. As we see that He's the only way of access to the Father. That's the most difficult message, I say again, for the sinner to accept today. It'll be tough to accept. Because you're totally and utterly and completely cast upon the mercies of the Lord to save you. And yet that's our great hope. (laughs) Jesus seeks and saves. And so that when that happens, and I've been renewed, and I've died to the self, and been become a new man, then my life goal is, as our uh, catechism says, now, by the Spirit, I'm wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for Him. I want to live for Him. I want to put to death the deeds of the body. I want to mortify sin in my life. And finding this gate, who is Christ. You know how blessed you are today, you know? Have you thought about when you leave here, how blessed you are? I want you to ponder that as you go to your homes today. And as you, uh, the Lord fills your mouth with good things. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He crowns you with loving kindness. And today He's going to fill your mouths with good things. Think about how blessed you are. And as you're doing that, think about all those today traveling the broad path. How much you've been given. How are we coming? Put it this way, you know. A lot of people today will have more excitement over a football game, or I guess in Canada it's hockey, than coming to the gate. Coming to the Lord's house, what Jacob found, Bethel. This is where the Lord is. This is where God has set a gate to us in the proclamation of His Word so that I can know His love. More people will be excited about those things than what you're receiving now, which are the words of life. Eternal life. Enter today through this Christ. Come to me, says Jesus. And I I hear the compassion in these words. And I will give you life. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Here's the compassion. All who come to me, I will by no means cast out. Never. Never. Come, dear sinner. Come to Christ with believing hearts. And you have come to the narrow gate. Amen. Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage, this passage that challenges us but also confronts us with the religion of our hearts that we would look only to Christ. Apply this in the power of your Spirit today as we find our righteousness and comfort in Him alone. Pray this in His name. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.